everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsuchu. This is episode number 120. Of all the states in the American South, particularly the Deep South, the state of Georgia may have had the most important influence on American popular music over the last 60 years. From the rich sounds of Otis Redding to the jazzy Southern rock of the Allman Brothers Band, as well as the jangly pop of R.E.M., and more recently, the city of Atlanta's rapid ascendancy to the top of the hip-hop kingdom, Georgia music runs soulful in and beyond R&B. Music isn't the only thing that's been great in Georgia, though. MLB's Atlanta Braves have enjoyed a history of success, dominating the National League Eastern Division for much of the last 30 years. So tonight, we'll discuss Georgia's fantastic history of producing popular music and low earned run averages. This is Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu, episode number 120, A Field Guide to Georgia. And my name's Gabe Essel, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dennis Levi-Leach and Jonathan Getz. How you doing, guys? It's good to see you again. Pretty good. Hello. Absolutely. Well, this is our, this is our, um, these are, these are our field guides episodes. For those of you who haven't listened before, these are one of my favorite episodes to do. We get to do a lot of, a lot of cool research and listen to a lot of good music and, um, read about baseball quite a bit up until the episode. And, uh, this is our fifth one we've done. If you want to check out the archives, you can find the other field guide episodes. We'll try to post the numbers on social, but, um, we've done, we've done Philly, we've done Detroit, we've done the Bay area and we've done the twin cities. So now we go down, we're taking it South and going to Georgia and guys, the reason I said the deep South, and I just want to get a little context here. Um, I had a, when I was, when I was in college, I had a, a class on Southern literature, right? American Southern literature. And this always stood out to me. What one of my professors, her name's Alice Robertson. So Alice, if you've ever listened or you're still around, <laughs> the hat tip to you here. Um, you know, she's, she was from Mississippi and she said, you know, the deep South to her was really only five states. And she said it was, even though there are many other states in the South, right? The deep South to her is, you know, the Carolinas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. And the reason she said that is because, you know, Texas has such its own kind of unique culture, you know, that is, that is, you know, uniquely Texas. Plus you've got, you know, a big Mexican influence there as well. You've got New Orleans, right? Which has the French, the huge French influence and New Orleans or Louisiana, excuse me, and, and New Orleans and you know, there's never there's no other city like that that has that French influence as such as as pronounced as New Orleans does and and other parts of just Cajun Cajun stuff all throughout New Orleans and then Florida you know is is largely a state of transplants I mean granted you've got you've got the Cuban you know influence in Miami and and on that coast but you know a lot of Florida a lot of people that live in Florida weren't born in Florida so those five states really stand out as kind of the deep American South. And we were looking for this episode, the state that I think, despite the blues probably coming from the, you know, the blues coming from the Mississippi Delta, Georgia really stood out to me as a place where uh, a rich history of music across different genres. Um, I, I guess, you know, we start out with this, we can, we can kind of toss this around a little bit, um, but where does, where does Georgia music kind of start for you guys? The one that like, really stands out to me over the last 60 years, you know, where like the most of the music I listen to, I think Otis Redding um, is, is a, is always like a good place to start. Not that he's the first musician from Georgia by any means, but I think you look at where he started, like, you know, unfortunately not a very long life at all, but you know, really early sixties, you know, is when like his first record, I think his first record came out in like 63 or something like that. And um, obviously, he had a big influence on the Allman Brothers, you know, as well. For sure. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of start with Otis as sort of 
I wouldn't call him, you know, the godfather of Georgia music, but maybe the godfather of 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 pop music in Georgia. You know, I think like, I think yeah. he was technically dubbed the king of soul. That was uh, right. His title. Um, you know, I would agree with him with that a lot. Uh, another person I would throw into the mix, and I mean, I I, I may be splitting hairs here. I, Ray Charles. He was sure. born in Albany, Georgia. Yeah. Right. I right. mean, I know I think he grew up like part of his youth in Florida and that's where he went to like the school for the blind in Florida mm-hmm. and stuff. But um yeah, I mean Ray Charles is his title is the father of soul music. Yeah, and, and most commonly associated with Georgia, like you said, even though he spent some time in other places. Yeah, yeah. I think people, yeah. people I mean, link him he, to the state. You know, as a kid, the, that was probably the first song I ever heard that talked about that, which was Georgia on my mind. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, his iconic version. And, um, you know, I he, he's one of those artists that, you know, he was around for so long that I think people took him for granted, kind of. Sure. Yeah. And right. I mean, like, you know, and he was around. He was one of those artists that was around for so many decades that by the end, you know, I know he was appreciated, but I don't think he was appreciated as much as he probably should have been. Because like I said, you know, he he was basically the father of modern soul music. He mm-hmm. kind of Absolutely. created that whole thing. And um, two really neat quotes about him were uh, Frank Sinatra called him the only true genius in the music business, which mm. I thought. That was a cool quote. High praise. Yeah. And then um, the other one was from Billy Joel. And in an interview, Billy Joel said, this may be sacrilegious, but I think Ray Charles is more important than Elvis. So, yeah. Cases and, could be made, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he was also, you know, you know, you're important when you were in the inaugural class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for whatever that is worth. I know what you mean, though. Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, if there if there's architects of rock and roll and what it became, he's got to be one of them. Yeah. You know, um, and just his influences, too, you know, because I came, he loved country music as well. You know, I mean, yeah. like he was just he blended it all. You know, I mean, rock and roll is a blend of influences. And I mean, it's not like a wanker when I say that, you know, but it is. And um, he's a guy that where a lot of those you know, those, those genres met at a crossroads well, yeah, he kind of, with jazz and him. He was, I mean, he obviously he could do jazz really well too. Yeah. Go ahead. Lee, I'm sorry. It's a good tandem when you're talking about him and Otis Redding, both yeah. uh, being from Georgia. Cause it was kind of like Ray Charles kind of opened the door and then Otis Redding kind of knocked it down. There you, go. <laughs> yep. you know what I mean? As far as the showmanship and uh, his style, you know, I mean, he he was also one of those just hardest working man in business kind of guys. The guy oh, constantly yeah. toured and, uh, you know, with the Booker T and the MGs as his backing band. And, yeah, it's such a shame that he died so young. Absolutely. Yeah, he was only like 26, I think, something like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, tragic there. But, you know, obviously the tunes live on. Um, you know, with Ray Charles, uh, Levi, you had mentioned how long his career lasted. You know, I mean, I think... If I'm not mistaken, he died around the time the biopic with with Jamie Foxx came out, right? Didn't he? I think like around that yeah, time. Yeah, because they they had like worked together on kind of like Ray Charles, I think, kind of taught him some piano stuff, sure. and then like kind of 
gave him tips on the vocal style and stuff. Yeah, and that, right. that's why Jamie Foxx sounds just like him. Oh yeah. He hit it out of the park. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a mediocre movie, you know, just kind of like as, you know, it's kind of like just plays kind of like a TV biopic, yeah. you know, but the music, I mean, just the performance of Fox. I mean, he, he earned the Oscar, like the first, you know, five, 10 minutes he was on the screen, you know I mean? So yeah. yeah Ray, the, Ray yeah. died uh, June, June 10th, 2004. And uh, yeah, the movie came out in October, 2004. Okay. Okay. I yeah, knew, they, I knew they, they aligned closely his death and, um, and the release of the film. And, you know, guys, I, I you know, he was around a long time and, you know, I, I, I did this, this is obviously, you know, is, is something pe- people, people are in commercials, you know, I mean, that's just oh, yeah. that's what you do. I think the Diet Pepsi or the Pepsi Diet Pepsi is kind of an ear banger, dude. I do. No, you got yeah. the right one. It rips, man. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about it the other day. Maybe pull it up on YouTube. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, a banger. It, 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 it was a cut. Well, and it was so damn catchy. You know what I yeah, mean? That, right. that commercial was like a cultural phenomenon. Much it was. Like, much like the Budweiser frogs or what, yeah. I mean, there were like random commercials in the nineties that became phenomenons and oh, absolutely yeah. the Ray Charles commercial w- was like a, a definitely a, a cultural movement. Yeah. It's a, it's a ripper, man. Like I, I'd forgotten yeah. about it. I pulled it up. I was like, man, this is an awesome song. Dude, like I'm kind of getting thirsty. <laughs> right. Right. Shit. I haven't had like a regular straight up Pepsi in years. It almost made me want to go get one, but I think it was, was it for diet Pepsi? I think maybe it you was. Maybe right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, man, it was, it was those two guys. Yeah. Those, um, I might have to change my Mount Rushmore now when we get to that Levi, I kind of, um, but, but yeah, it's, um, those, those two are Titans, Titans of Georgia, Titans of music. Um, you know, obviously both of those guys, you can say influenced, uh, an important rock and roll band that I think probably, I, I, I would think most people think of like the the preeminent rock and roll band to come out of Georgia. And it's a band that I know that all three of us started listening to right around the same time. I think Jonathan in particular, um, you know, really turned me on to a lot of the Almond's deeper catalog. So Jonathan with the Almond Brothers band, um, obviously influenced by R&B and jazz and some country, but also uh, rock and roll. What was your your first your first introduction to the almonds and and uh, just maybe tell us a little bit more about where they fit into Georgia's place in in music? Sure, yeah, I, I think it was uh, both Eda Peach and Fillmore East, um, and it was interesting because it was that paired with um, Back Where It All Begins, which was so it mm. was like it was it was the early stuff, and then it was also at the time would have, would have been their most recent record. It was around 94. Around so, 94, right? yeah. Because, yeah, Back Where It All Begins is 94. And, and so it was two very different incarnations. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and so I just kind of consumed it all at the same time. And, and I think I got the, the greatest hits for uh, for um, part of my uh, Columbia music. Yeah. Ten free CDs. Um, I remember getting... Is it- the one with the denim jacket on the yeah, denim jacket, de- de- yep. de- yeah, yeah. Like the yeah I got that sewn. one grade or so, eighth or ninth grade. Yeah, yeah. That, that is CD, a hell of a cover. Yeah. As great as his covers go, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. But and and so yeah, yeah. Latched onto Eat a Peach uh, pretty quickly, and um, 
and then subsequently got to got to see them in like uh 95 summer 95 down at uh riverport uh that particular incarnation uh with jimmy reddy uh jimmy reddy shout out <laughs> that, yeah that wasn't the horde tour was it or, or was it a, a headlining album that's, that's a good question that's a good question was that the horde tour i would have known this probably five years ago um I'll have to look it up. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, to hear something like In Memory of Elizabeth Reed mm-hmm. and r- realize what rock music could be, you know, and what classic rock mm-hmm. music could be. And it wasn't just, you know, what you heard on FM radio. It was, it, yeah. was, <laughs> it was jazz, like we said, you know, sure. it was absolutely. Um, and uh, it was something that for, for whatever reason, yeah, I just, uh, I gravitated toward and and uh, was also blown away by like kind of the mythology of the band, right? You know, with Dwayne Dwayne <clears throat> passing so early and then Barry Oakley passing as well, and and reading about that and and uh, it it added a lot, I guess, to the texture of the band and and to understand how far they had come to uh, where they were at the time, which was you know this current incarnation with Warren Haynes and and uh, Alan Woody and and uh, yeah, there was just a lot there. Uh, to be able to who, who, who really rejuvenated the band. I don't think you can sell. I don't think sure. we can undersell yeah. that point, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, or oversell that point enough, you know, right. I mean, yeah, those, those guys, those guys turned them around and made them into like a really viable touring act again. You know, I mean that, oh, yeah. that For, of the, I like, kind, of, kind of got into the jam band scene, you know, they broke into that as, you know, as well. Um, just they had been doing it for the, 20, 20 some years prior just didn't have a name for it you know yeah right. yeah and it's interesting right. like that because and maybe this is common in rock and roll but greg and dickie of course were the faces of the band being the lead singers right. uh and so they were kind of more instantly recognizable but but meanwhile you could argue that the two most important members of the band over its tenure were Dwayne allman and warren haynes I agree with that. Um, that is a that that could start many bar fights to say that, right? Right. <laughs> well, no, for sure, I agree. You know, it not not a lot of bands can go through a what they did. Um, you know, it's still online and you can read it for free. The Cameron Crow article where he got to interview Greg Ullman, I think it's from like seventy two. Um, they they were they went through a lot of shit, man, and so. For them to even come back to the level that they did, and then to have like seven turns and where it all begins be some of their strongest studio. Seven turns is so good. Yeah. Like those two albums (laughs) are some of their strongest studio albums, and they're 20 plus years removed from the classic lineup of the band. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who, you know, the only other people that I could think that possibly could say that is maybe Aerosmith, but I don't know know if the later you know what i mean like but that didn't involve any personnel changes right true yeah so yeah Yeah. i mean they they definitely are kind of on their own as being a band that was able to do that agree right yeah and and and, um you know like levi said that was there was the you know the seven turns the, the, I think that's Alan and, and Warren's yeah, first yeah. record with them, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, the impacts felt right away um, because there was there was probably about a seven or eight year period there where obviously I, I think they broke up for a little while, right? Um, it was like like after Brothers and Sisters, which was commercially huge, 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's even though like I think the three of us and probably a lot of I don't know fans really think of Dwayne, you know, and just that even though that brief period that he had with the almonds as as being the crowning achievement commercially you know brothers and sisters doesn't have Dwayne on it and um it's it was it was it was commercially huge i mean ramble man just catapulted them mm-hmm. into you know, stardom really mm-hmm. it mainstream audiences too you know um and then after brothers and sisters you know i think they took some time off and dicky did his solo stuff um which I like. I like that first great Southern record quite a bit. Um, Looks like like seventy six to seventy nine was kind of the breakup. Yeah, there. right. A little bit of a little bit of a lull there, or a, a soft breakup, and then then they came back and kind of probably you know like a lot of veteran artists when the eighties hit probably didn't exactly know where they fit in. You know, um, kind of a a tough time. For, for some bands that maybe couldn't make that transition as well, like yeah, you know, like somebody like Aerosmith or somebody like Genesis or Yes did uh, for the Alm- or ZZ Top for the Almonds it was it, it seemed like it was a little tougher. Well, and I think part of that too was classic rock was kind of able to do that, like yeah. you said, but like Southern rock when the eight the late seventies and the eighties hit, like Southern rock basically died. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Uh, you know. Pass. Yeah. The only bands that were kind of able to pivot a little bit were like 38 Special, and they basically had to kind of change their sound. Sure. It got really glossy. Yeah. 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 80s production did not play to Southern Rock. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, definitely not. If there's any if there's any hint of it, guys, and guys, I want to tell the listeners, we uh, I will dig it up and post it on social, but we, we did a full Southern Rock episode where we where we we. we talked about a lot of this um i i like that rossington collins band is like an 80s southern oh, yeah. rock they only, they only i mean they didn't have they didn't last long you know it was only like two records no that album but, rocks yeah the, that was kind of that was kind of like a good in between of the 70s the, the, sound in my opinion rock. the the secret weapon of that album is dale krantz yeah oh yeah which is gary rossington's wife oh yeah she's she, great she could wail man yeah yeah. There's a couple. There's a couple live shows that are out there, like FM transfers you can find on YouTube. You know, of um, like Sunday night concert type things from like the early '80s. They're so they're really good. But anyway, yeah, we'll we'll check out that episode. But the Almonds, yeah, um, such a an important legacy, and um, also it, it carries on. You know, I mean, they when you think of the Almonds, you think of Offspring, right? As well, um, not the Offspring, the but other well, Offspring. Not, not the Offspring. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i was like i was thinking the other day god don't the allman brothers sound just like the offspring right um, <laughs> right no way. yeah, yeah right i love that 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 20 minute keep them separated that the offspring did i saw them that one time warren haynes came out with them just just kidding keep them separated and the little martha back into keep them right separated. right, <laughs> right yeah. but um yeah, you know, they it's it's their offspring um has uh, as family members have, you know, have have really carried on the torch admirably. You know, you've got Derek Trucks um and and you know, Susan Tedeschi doing their thing. You've got um De- uh Devin all or Devin Allman and um and and Dwayne Betts and and Barry Oakley Jr. now, right? Who Levi, I think you're going to see them in a couple weeks, right? Yeah. The Almond Bets, I don't know if they're calling it Almond Bets Revival, I think. Yeah. They, they called it Almond Bets Reunion last year, 
but now I think they've changed it to Almond Bets Revival. And yeah, it's like tons of special guests. Anders Osborne, uh, Tal Wolkenfeld on base. Jackie Green, I think, is there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it should be great. Yeah, let me know how that is. I'm 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 excited for that. And I I think you're missing it. But Chuck Lavelle's joining them on a few other dates, like later in the tour. That would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, so it obviously it continues, you know, and it's good to see that you you could almost we were text we were exchanging texts about this the other day. You could you could almost create a pretty kick ass band around, you know, the one surviving well, well, Dickie's still alive, but around around J Mo, you know, and and just tour that as an Alban Brothers legacy thing, kind of like they're doing, I guess. But uh Did you it's ever catch them live. What's that? Did you guys ever see the Alban Brothers? Live? Yeah, a couple times. Yeah. I did in uh I saw Derek Trucks' first tour, which was in ninety nine. So that was that would have been him and Dickie playing I together. That was a weird show, just for the fact that they were all on stage together. Right? Right. Yeah. It was Warren, Dwayne, right. and and or uh yeah. You I meant Derek. But yeah, yeah. That, I think I saw the Riverport show with that. I went to that. Yeah, Jonathan, I think you went to that too. I think. I think uh, I was there with you. I saw Riverport ninety five. Like Riverport ninety nine. Okay. Yeah. Five times total. Okay. And then I, I saw him at Bonnaroo a couple times, like with when Warren returned. Okay. Um, and they had O'Teal on base. Uh and then I Yeah. And then I, I think I saw him once more. Getz and I saw him at Farm Aid, but it was kind of like a Warren and, and Allen had just left. So they had O'Teal there, but they also had, I want to say Jack Pearson, maybe, I think, um, who's fine in his own right. But, you know, obviously a little bit of a letdown after Warren Hayes yeah, leaves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite shows of theirs was in 2005. They played a, a, a small theater here in Kansas City called the Uptown Theater. And I think it was two nights, and I went. I went to. I think I got to go to one of those nights. It was an awesome experience just to be able to catch them in a theater be. like that. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. So it would have been it would have been Warren and Derek, right, at that show? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and then um, you know, obviously, brother Greg left us a few years ago, not too long ago, and that was kind of that was kind of the the end of it. Um, even though. Into the band, not the end of the sound, I guess I should say. Sure. You know? sure. Yeah. But anyway, so Almond's important to us, important to music. Um, we'll move on, guys, because we're, we're kind of working our way from, you know, the 60s, Votus Reddy and Ray Charles, their peak work, and the 70s with the Almond Brothers. I'm going to move on um, to the 80s now uh, and Georgia music. And um, a band that was popular, you know, was... They were I'm trying to think, you know, my I've, I've only appreciated their more their 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 first few albums in recent years. I think when you're a, someone our age, unless somebody like you got really somebody really cool that gives you a copy of Murmur or Reckoning or something like that. You know, you're you're going to your your first exposure to R.E.M. is probably going to be, you know, Green or Green was my first exposure. But then also, you know, obviously out of time you know, lifts them to superstar status. Um, but yeah, talking about REM and, and um, I think probably, probably my favorite band to have maybe their first record come out in the eighties, you know, they're, they're up there uh, for me in terms of most important and, and ones that I feel like 
has aged incredibly well and I can listen to all the time. Um, I remember getting the stand single on 45. Nice. Um, my dad took me to it and my, and strangely enough, even though you wouldn't, I mean, obviously the listeners aren't going to know my dad, but like, like my dad's favorite artist is probably like George Thorogoods. Like when I, when I found out my dad liked REM, I was, I was really surprised, you know, it's like, you know, I <laughs> think of my dad's and they're being like, God, I love fables of the reconstruction, you know? Um, but he, and he, I don't know if he got that, but he really, he really liked, I think the jangly parts of it. And he, he, I remember he liked green, so, you know, we, we, we watched a couple of those videos on MTV and he took me to get stand, you know, the single on 45. And I remember listening to it with him and it's also his birthday today. So I want to give a happy birthday oh, to my old man. Birthday, um, yeah, right on Johnny. Um, so, so yeah, I, you know, and then, and guys lately, you know, I, in like in college, I always respected REM, you know I mean? Like I, like I said, with, with green and then, you know, they, they become an MTV band, you know, in the early nineties, you know, I, I associate them with MTV pretty closely and, you know, like 90, 91 to like 95 or so. Um, and then, you know, I kind of forget about them, you know, in college. Cause I listened to another Georgia band widespread panic all the time when I was in college and, uh, you know, REM gets kind of overshadowed and I, I don't really start picking them up again until a few years ago. Um, probably, after they kind of disbanded um, when I, when I discovered, you know, the earlier work, um, you know, chronic town and um, reckoning and murmur and, and, and fables of the reconstruction and life's rich pageant, all that. Um, those albums are all just, just phenomenal records. Oh yeah. Um, Good and, uh, it's, it's just, my wife and I were listening to him the other day as I was prepping for this episode. I think I had reckoning on in the car. We were running some errands and I was kind of like, you know, they, they took, they took kind of like the birds and mixed it with the talking heads a little bit. You know what I mean? Like it, for sure. Yeah. You know? Um, and also, you know, they're, this, these are stereotypes and they, and you know, they, they're, some of them are earned and some of them aren't. Obviously we think of, we think of the South sometimes and you know, the, the, we conjure up the stereotypical, like, you know, hick type thing, you know, and I think, I think REM, you know, being guys from Athens really always kind of really railed against that. And you look at like an album, like fables of the reconstruction, it's got a lot of Southern and Gothic themes on it, you know, that really, that really speak to, I think, um, being from the South, but also, you know, recognizing the, the, the beauty and the shame in that, so to speak. You know what I mean? Um, that's not the best way to put it, but I, I, I feel like there's um, there's such a there's such a unique band and just really just uber important. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, they. Uh, my first introduction to them was my sister, who you talked yeah. about having a cool person to introduce them to. Sure, there you go. Yeah, you had and a good. So sister, a good my choice. sister was ten years older than me, and so I can remember the first albums like her just listening to him in her bedroom. And I think I may have mentioned this on a other podcast episode, but she had an REM poster and it was an original and Michael Stipe has long hair in it. I was yeah. going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's, 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 but I, it's, it's sometimes weird to see him with long hair anyway. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, she was like a super fan from the beginning. And so reckoning and murmur, I heard all the time growing up. And so, I kind of, you know, once she moved away, once she graduated high school, I heard them less, obviously. 
Sure. Except for when I got to see them on MTV. And so like the albums that kind of made them huge, like green and, um, out of time, out of time. The people. Those were like my least favorite REM records. Yeah, yeah. Because I kind of liked what I heard growing up, which was the first couple, and then so my kind of reintroduction to them on my own terms was when Monster came out, and mm-hmm. uh, the the video for What's the Frequency, Kenneth, was on all the time. I'm, yeah, and I love that song. And that song's so, such a ripper, dude. And yeah. so, yeah, that was kind of my reintroduction to them uh, after kind of not really being into them for a long time. And so, uh, they uh, they definitely earned their places, you know, being one of the the greatest bands out of Georgia. Um, and to throw this in, not to take away the momentum from them, but I think a band right before them that kind of open the doors for them was the B-52s from Ashton. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah And absolutely. so, um, you know... Good, good, their, good point. Their first album, I think, was around 1976, and so they were kind of with the birth of the New Wave era, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they, they, like, perfectly combined, like, 50s and 60s pop culture with, yeah. like, with, like, trashy trailer culture. Yeah. It's, like drive-in movie sleazy early rock and roll like yeah, it's like totally. this weird like mix and so yeah i i just want to mention them before we talk more about the the rem Good and point. Yeah. yeah and they they are from athens as well right yep. yes yes yeah so really probably america's best college town for music right i mean i think yeah, so right? yeah yeah it's up there yeah yeah yeah, um, I don't. I don't know what type of bands have come out of Ames, Iowa, gets, but um, you know, it's uh, there's a couple. Yeah, yeah there's a couple. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, between um, between REM, the B52s, and Widespread Panic, um, uh, yeah, Athens, Athens might take the cake for for college town music. Um, but yeah, you know, did you guys know this? I, I did not. Um, they did not despite those two albums being so commercially huge um, out of time and automatic for the people, do you know, they didn't tour for either of those records. I kind of recall that now that you say that, like, and it was like a big deal. Like, there was a lot of, oh, yeah, there, obviously there was a lot of pressure yeah. because the album is, you know, out of time sold like 10 million copies or something like that. Um, but no, they didn't tour, I guess like they didn't, they didn't want to. And then also they were, they were, um, they were really writing a ton and I think probably thought that would kind of distract them. You know what I mean? Or they wouldn't have as much time to do it because, um, out of time and, and, um, automatic for the people and monster, like they never stopped writing. They're like, they never took time off from like out. They already had the songs for automatic for the people before they were done touring. Um, before, before out of time, like while out of time was still like on the charts, you know what I mean? Like just, they were just constantly just cranking out material and writing and they didn't tour and again until monster. Um, so yeah, it was just such a, such a prolific period of, 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 of their writing, you know, I mean, I just, just to sit on that many good songs 
record and produce that many good songs over like like a five year, four year, four or five year period is insane. And then to to your point, Gabe, uh, with New Adventures in Hi Fi, that yeah. being recorded while they were on tour for Monster, it's like wow, exactly. These, they just can't turn it off. <laughs> so sandwich that one in, or put that one book in it with that one as well. Yeah. I forgot that that was so close too. So yeah, so like basically like ninety to ninety six, ninety one to 96 maybe even those guys are prolific man um and and then in the 80s too um shit they put out like seven lps in the 80s you know so um and then chronic town's an ep but you know after that they were just constantly cranking them out i mean um just almost an album a year um so I could see why they wanted to take a break, you know, when, um, yeah. when, uh, after the nineties ended, I could see why those guys would probably want to take a break. Probably pretty exhausted. Well, and you know, it was during the era when album sales made you money as an yeah, artist. Sure. Sure. Where they probably didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Their hand wasn't forced to where, Oh, if we want to make money, we have to go to her. Sure. Which is, you know, artists are faced with that today. Yeah. Yeah, they were back on when royalties Rose. existed. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, you could you could just sort of lock yourself up and keep creating. You know, uh, you didn't have to take it on the road necessarily if it was if it was successful enough commercially. So yeah, um, but yeah, I can't really understate their importance. Um, even guys, I, I I flirted with some of their more recent LPs, like post New Adventures and Hi Fi, right? Um, and uh, there's some good stuff in there, like maybe not start to finish. It's it's well, not maybe not. It's they're not on par with their 80s and early 90s stuff. But that album up, which came out in like 98, got dogged quite a bit. You know, like it was it wasn't um, critically acclaimed, which is un- which is rare for them because critics mostly eat up R.E.M. albums. Um but there's some really good songs on it, though. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that record from 98 up. It's um, I don't think it really produced like a big single or anything like that. And I guess was sort of seen as a commercial disappointment after, you know, the three previous albums had done so well. But um, there's there's some there's some stuff worth taking on there. I think for the, to accompany this episode, I'm going to make like a post 1996 R.E.M. mix, you know, to like extract the nuggets from the later catalog. So cool. Nice. Yeah, it's worth checking out. Um, and then they've they've their most recent album even came out of since 20 in like 2018. Um, and they called it, you know, they, they've kind of it, it's weird. It, it, there there was no big like reunion concert or like no big like, hey, we're going to invite a bunch of people that we influenced and they're going to send us off. You know, it wasn't really anything like that. Um so, you know, who knows what they'll do again? I mean, I know Buck and and Mills show up with some bands I like and stuff sometimes and play with them. But um, it's been a real joy getting in over the last couple of years and, and more so even for this episode, yeah. getting into getting into those first few albums, you know, Chronic Town through through Life's Rich Pageant, um, because just it wasn't I, I wasn't that familiar with it. I wasn't cool enough, I guess. And it's just it's just such a good sound. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Well, you know, we're talking about Athens, Georgia, um, important place. We'll go into a little bit of uh, of the of the this band and and a couple others, and and, and then we'll we'll switch over to baseball. But um, obviously, I think 
widespread panic, um, you know, deserves a mention for this episode during this episode as well. Um, I've certainly been on a kick of listening to their, their, um, their late nineties shows recently. And I, it kind of reminded me of how good, good that they were. And I remember, I, I mean, all three of us were into them. I don't know if it was like, I mean, Jonathan, you and I started listening to them around the same time. I don't know if it was like, I had a buddy at Western who turned me on to him. I, I can say that he, his name is Luke. Um, Luke, if you're out there, and I think he has listened a couple times. Thank you for, for introducing me to the panic around 90, like fall of 97. I mean, I think maybe I'd heard of him in high school, but I never, I'm trying to think like, I, I think he was the person that really turned me on to him because he, he turned me on to their live shows, you know. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I remember standing in line at uh, Recycled Records in Springfield with Bombs and Butterflies uh, in my hand oh, okay. by yeah. Bombs and Butterflies. I that forget which year it was, but 96. Yeah, it was released yeah. in 97. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I would have I would have seen them around the time that came out. My first show of, of widespread was in the fall of 97 and in, of all places, decal Illinois at the, 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 on, the ballroom on campus at Northern Illinois University on like a weeknight and it was it was great it was uh, um such a good show um yeah chili water was awesome um but yeah they they um i i i most closely associate their sound with you know michael hauser's guitar playing and um we talked a little bit about on the show before how how that um you know that it, it, how critical of a member he was of the band, you know, and I, I, I feel like um, as much as I, as much as I appreciate them soldiering on as, as great of guitarist as Jimmy Herring is, I don't know. I, I, I can't say as though I'm drawn to them. Like I used to be, you know, I don't go see them live when they roll through town and they, you know, they play Chicago, I think fairly frequently. Um, but yeah, it's just not the same, but. Uh, and to be clear, Michael Hazard, for those people who don't know, passed away in 2002. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and maybe I didn't set up panic in the best in the best way here. I mean, how how, how would you guys describe their sound? Just just curious. Oh God, <laughs> right? Um, American Southern Rock Jam. I guess if I had to like right. somehow add a bunch of adjectives together to make it another band that was my first introduction was from my sister. When yep. Bombs and Butterflies came out, she gave me that CD and Ain't Life Grand. And so nice. I I had those, and I was literally probably the only kid in Chatham, Illinois, who had any idea who Widespread Panic was at that time. Yep. And um, I, I listened to those two albums a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, it, they're very hard to just like say one word describes them. Sure. I think kind of like the same way along the same roads as the grateful dead. It's hard to just, I mean, they write American style Americana type lyrics paired with some Southern rock vibes as far as guitaring and, and solo along with extended improvisation jams. Yeah. And yeah, so sure. um, they, uh, like you said, they're, they're a totally different band without having one guy being missing, which is crazy. You know, um, I mean, and not in a negative way. I don't anyone to think that we, we do not like widespread panic now or anything. Oh, sure. Like that. Sure. It's yeah. No, I, I respect, the, I respect it. It was such a different, so, yeah. it was such a different machine 
of yeah. the band when he was in the band and the groove the groove was totally different and so Absolutely. it's just a different thing and so you know um I, I still appreciate them. I, I just, like I said before, I think before we talked about having this episode, it's just crazy how much one person could affect a band like that. Absolutely. Where, you know, you still have another, what, four or five original members. But still got the, four. Yeah. The, yeah. The, sound, the sound was so affected by him leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then... You know, they lost a hell of a drummer in Todd Nance, too. Um, so rest in peace there. But, um, you know, if obviously we talked about the Almonds earlier, and I would think they would be, you know, when I think of their biggest influences, I'd probably say the Almonds and Traffic, probably, the two bands that come to mind. Yeah, yeah. For, for Panic, yeah. you know, when I think of Panic. Um, you know, I, I guess you could you could also make a case for like I think like they're you could tell like they're like big Curtis Mayfield fans as well. You know, um, they've got that too. They've got certainly like a seventy. They, they've got like an R and B influence too on some of their tunes. You know, as well. You can hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's they're they're so good and were really important to us. Getz, heck, you you saw them probably more than any of us. Uh, I saw them six six times. I think. Okay. Um, uh, one of the, the the first times in '99 and in, in Peoria it was one of the hottest oh, shows Madison I've ever Theater. been to. That was a banger, man. Madison Theater, where we're hell. up in the balcony and like there oh. wasn't a dude in that venue with a shirt on. Like it was that oh, yeah. hot. Everybody. Was and during the yeah. set break, we all just like went down and stood in the doorway. Like they let us like go like like three feet out and onto the sidewalk <laughs> just to like yeah. get some fresh air. Yeah. And, um, uh, but yeah, man, it was so much fun. Uh, Dirty Dozen Brass Band was there, right? Oh yeah, and came out with them for yeah. Chili Water. Yeah, yeah, they opened yes. and then they came out with them. And uh, so between that and then also in '99, uh, uh, Panic released "Till the Medicine Takes," which is uh, one of my favorite uh, studio albums by any jam band. Sure. And I, I feel like what they did in in during those sessions was was kind of unique at the time especially is kind of groundbreaking in a way um in that they you know they incorporated some electronic uh music mm-hmm. and then yeah. they, they also incorporated you know they, they like the band grew you know they got some backing vocals in there and and uh or brought in a horn section and 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 it kind of had this own vibe mm-hmm. uh that i i really latched on to and, and i'm still spinning that record a few times a year and thoroughly enjoying it, but there's, there's kind of a there's kind of a New Orleans sound on that record. Definitely, yeah, you know I mean? yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, band, um, but, yeah, uh, kind kind of like Blind Little... Melon uh, uh, Soup, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's got that right. kind of vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at uh, one time they had. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, at one time they had the record for the uh, world's largest record release party when they basically shut down. Athens, Georgia. Isn't that nuts? They too, had, that like a hundred thousand people showed up to see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Grant, in, I know it's a hometown in show. Downtown in downtown Athens, Georgia, no less. I wonder if, like, you know, just like everybody was there, like the lady that worked at the bank was like, "Hey, let's go to Panic," you know? Right? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everybody was like, "Ah, hell with it, let's just party today." You know? <laughs> and the mailman throws the mailman throws all the letters. You know, he's like, oh, "I'm going to the show." <laughs> it, it, it's hard to uh, remember that 
it, or it's easy to forget, I should say, that they got all this started in the 80s. Like Space yeah, Wrangler debut came out in 88, right? 88, right. And and so it's hard to fathom that like like so shortly after the Super Bowl shuffle, like panic mm-hmm. was going into the studio. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Right. Uh, and so they've been doing it uh, for, for so long. It kind of broke ground like Fish did, you know, in the studio in the 80s. And whereas you usually associate these sounds as, you know, coming to prominence in the mid-90s, late-90s, the jam band scene. Uh, but at that point, they had been doing it for a decade, man. They had, yeah, yep. And and those albums are good. You know, I, I like I, I like mm-hmm. pieces of their studio. I mean, they'll always obviously, they'll, they'll always be a live band. And, you know that's that's their oh, they so, dominate I think but dude, but yeah self titled something to be said those are what's that self titled with send yeah. your mind and walk in and see brown yeah. oh man Absolutely. yeah yeah I I, I hear you um it, it's good stuff and it, it's like even if it's not the same it's really good to see those guys carry on and, and still have a lot of success on the road and and have people younger than us into them you know it's it's, it's a good thing ultimately um. Okay. Well, yeah, I know we're, uh, we'll, 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 maybe we'll, a band that we, that we've do, devoted a ton of time to on the podcast that, you know, is certainly Georgia music, the Black Crows. We've, um, we've, we've devoted, and they've got their place and they're, they're super important. Um, and they've meant a lot to us. If you've listened to like more than four episodes of this podcast, you can probably figure that out. Um, but we're not, because we've had whole episodes about that band before, we're not really going to devote much time to them tonight. But uh, obviously, they, you know, if I had to make a a Mount Rushmore of Georgia groups, which that becomes a lot of people on a Mount Rushmore. But anyway, um, you know, they're there. You know, I, I can't deny that they're there. Yep, they're, uh, no yep. Else yep they're, they're there with driving and crying, who we've discussed many times in the past. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Both both great bands as well. But uh, I wanted to shine a little bit of a brighter spotlight on Panic tonight. So, um, I'll guys, I'll I'll book in the music part before we get into talking about the Atlanta Braves. Um, with Atlanta has become really the hip hop capital of the United States. Uh, over probably like I'd say about the last 15 years, uh, even more so like the last 10 years. But, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, most folks just how how hip hop's had its different capitals, so to speak. You know, maybe maybe that's that's just part of popular music. You know, this cities get hot. You know, people in those cities have stories to tell, et cetera, uh, or those places. Um but, you know, most folks associate rap, I think, you know, of the of, with the Northeast and New York City in like the 80s and then the 90s in the, on the West Coast. Um, but really in the early to mid aughts, Atlanta really took over hip hop and has remained, you know, by far the undisputed rap capital of the U.S. Um, and I've started listening to more of it lately, uh, particularly when uh, Migos dropped culture in like 2016 2017 i think right around there um i felt like those guys were were really inventive and funny and clever and i feel like um the genre some of the rap coming out today not while while i don't enjoy all of it i think just to call it like mumble rap or something like that's really dismissive um 
of it and, and it's just too much of a pejorative term but um you know you can debate the quality of some of the rap coming out of atlanta but you can't deny its dominance and i don't really think a city has ever taken over a, a genre of music quite like this um so you know if it kind of started with you know um like T.I. was like the one of the he wasn't the first Atlanta rapper, but he was one of the first people to really break through that scene. And I remember right around the time I was started teaching high school about 20 years ago, the kids were all going crazy over T.I. So I listened to a little bit of them from them. You know, they turned me on to him. I was kind of like, OK, you know, I was like I was one of those people that was like, oh, you need to know who Rakim is. You know what I mean? Or you need to know who, who you know, KRS-One is or something like that. So and they were just kind of like, meh, to some of that. And then they were like, no, <laughs> T.I.'s better. Right. Like okay, whatever. And then and then I read this book um, by Joe Joe Coruscelli this summer called Rap Capital, and it chronicles. You know, I, I recommend checking it out. It's a really good book. And not only is um, when he he writes really eloquently on hip hop, but he also writes, I think, um, very intelligently on the city of Atlanta itself, um, and 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 how that's contributed to the sound. So I recommend somebody everybody checking that out. And I guess kind of like the main takeaway for me is, you know. Um, don't don't just miss something, you know, until you've you've really had a chance to dig some of your fingers into it, because I uh, I certainly love hip hop, but I was definitely kind of like a hip hop purist. You know, it's got to be lyrically brilliant. You know, it's got to you know what I mean? It's got to it's got to be the hip hop I grew up with, so to speak, unless it's somebody like Outkast, you know, another another um, group from Atlanta that is so, so good. And um but but I think yeah, that I, I, yeah. I, remember, I remember when Stinkonia came out, I ended up buying it on CD because MTV played the hell out of uh, the bombs over Baghdad. Oh, OK. Yeah. So for Baghdad and yeah. just that sound, it was so intense that I was like, I need to hear this again. Like where I like I'm going to buy or, you so know, and it was probably the, the first rap CD I had bought since, you know, something from like snoop or dr dre you know what i mean i right. hadn't bought a rap cd in a while until mm-hmm. until i heard stankonia absolutely and and when i say ti was like the first he wasn't like i mean he was kind of the first of like the trap kind of genre the stuff that's popular today i think he planted the, those seeds you know outcast was there several years before him and making just really wild hip-hop music i don't know how else to put it it was just there's like levi said of stanconia and and love below and speaker box there's really there's just nothing else has been done like that you know um those guys those guys cemented their legacy just just right there you know by with those those records so um yeah i'm and it's it's odd that they're they're not you know they're they're not we're not getting new music from them you know, it's kind of that's that's I think one of the the tragedies of Outcast. But I don't know. I guess they're content with where they are, separate, so to speak. Um, but but yeah, they they obviously are on are on that Mount Rushmore as well. Well, yeah, I think hip hop is one of the few genres where you do you don't have to be prolific to still be considered a pioneer or. Mm-hmm. A legend, sure. you know yes. what I mean? Doctor right. Dr. Ray has two records, basically. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And, and and so, yeah, I mean, I don't feel like they've ever felt a pressure, maybe that oh, we have to put more product out. But yeah. I get what you're saying. It it's a shame for us that there's yeah. not more music. 
Right. Because, I mean, if, if if that's where they were headed, you know, like speaker box love below, you know, like, God, what would have come next? You know, there would have been some crazy good shit. Yeah. So and I, I'm sure they've been offered, you know, I'm sure they've they've people have put checks in front of them and said, hey, let's take this on the road again, you know. And but yeah, for whatever reason, um, I haven't read much up on about it, why they they don't feel the need to. But um, or if one of them's driving it more than the other. But I like to assume it's because but, they uh, save their money. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> they just don't need maybe to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you can tell from our conversation here, and there's, and listen, like like all these episodes of the Field Guides, we don't get to cover everybody, you know. So, um, if there's any we missed, um, and I'm sure we did, please please let us know. And uh, but we'll we'll go ahead and, and, and transition to baseball now, guys. Um, with I think one of you know, gosh, when you when I say National League. Levi, if I exclude the Cubs, right, because they're your team, who do you think of? Like, I just say National League, man on the street. Levi, what, what do you, you know, like, <laughs> you can't say the Cubs. Who do you think of? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I guess my would probably say Brewers, but in the 1990s, it would have been the Atlanta Braves. Yeah. <laughs> and in the yeah. 1990s, the Brewers were in the American League. <laughs> right. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. The Brewers were in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the 1990s, yeah, the the first other team I would have said was the Atlanta Braves. Absolutely, yeah. Same yeah. here. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they had the Superstation, man. It's like yeah. If, what the, if the, the Cubs weren't the, playing, the Cubs? I'd go see if the Braves yeah. were playing. You know, yeah. <laughs> and quite a turnaround. I mean, the the first to worst thing. Um, so we're, we're when we say that we're talking about, um, you know, I think they won like 64 games or something like that in 1990. And then, you know, they they won like 30 some more games the following year in 91 and, and ended up going all the way to the World Series to face another team that was terrible the year before, the Minnesota Twins. But um, really, guys, they. With the exception of like I, I looked at kind of their winning percentages um, over, since 1990, 91. Yeah, 91. And. Um, you know, they don't have a lot to show for it in World Series. They got two of them, at least several appearances, but only two titles. Most recent one coming in 2021. But their winning percentage from 1990 up until this or 1991, excuse me, up until this year is 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 50, 57 percent, essentially. Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. So pretty good. You know, maybe I, I guess I thought it would have been a little higher than that. Um. They had a couple really bad seasons not that long ago. Like when they were building maybe the farm system up for this team, like around 2015, 2016, um, or maybe just, you know, the wave of players had other earlier players had retired. Um, They had a couple bad years there um, until they they rebounded. And um, gosh, you know, I guess not awful that, you know, they they haven't lost 100 games since 88. Yeah, right. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I don't when I you know, I asked Levi that question, and maybe just because I'm not as tethered to the Cubs, you know, um, I think of the Braves as like the premier National League franchise. I, I, I would say so. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're well, I mean, the Dodgers are up there. The Dodgers win a lot too. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and they have... Levi, Levi, you won't want to hear. This. You can make a case for the Cardinals as well. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a it's a it's a generational type of a thing. You know what I mean? It seems like it goes through phases. Generational, That's regional. Just... Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, Gabe, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, anytime a team wins the pennant, being that they win their division like 10 years in a row, yeah, like yeah. crown them, right? <laughs> I don't care how many World Series they lose in that time. Sure. <laughs> because, yeah, maybe, maybe, I, this, maybe this have this a franchise of playoff anxiety. I don't know. But like, yeah, well, I mean, the, the playoffs are kind of random. You know, it's only right. a best of, it's only a best of five. It's only a best of seven. And it's like anything can happen. The, the, the worst team wins the series many times it's like a coin flip and right now the time yeah. of this recording we've got a team in the world series that had the fewest wins that made yeah. the playoffs yeah right I yeah mean, so there were just a few games above 500 they didn't make the playoffs yeah. until the last day of the year and so and and this is it's interesting because you know you then you can all of a sudden have, have a discussion about the merits of being the best regular season team versus winning a world series and mm-hmm. and and while winning World Series is is awesome and, and flags fly forever, um, no doubt. But you know, being a being a good or great regular season team, regular season is about living for today and going out to the ballpark and just enjoying it. And there's not like a lot on the line, right? Mm-hmm. And those Braves fans have gotten to see a lot of winning baseball mm-hmm. <laughs> over the last thirty years. And yeah, they only have two World Series, but. Sure, they'd sign they were, up for the, that. The errors that they have—I mean, it's just a matter of how it fell. In my kind of opinion, um, the years that they were getting to go to the World Series, the AL was tough. Yankees. I mean, yeah. I think the the National League only won two or three All Star games in the nineties. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was you know, and so. Not that I guess all-star games equates it, but I mean, the American League was stacked in the 90s for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yankees yeah. dynasty. Um, yeah. And then you get the Red Sox moving into the 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. They made it to so many playoff, like in LCS and World Series that I kind of forget. You know what I mean? Like I, if somebody just blurts off a random year in the, over the last 30 years, I'd probably say, oh, the Braves are probably at least in the NLCS or something, you know? I mean, it's it's a tradition of maybe not winning at all, but certainly winning. Um, you know, Jonathan, you had some notes here. Um, one of them, you know, obviously, if we think of, you know, who's the premier Brave, it's obviously Hank Aaron, uh, despite all the other players they've had and you mentioned here is age 37 season so he the braves leave milwaukee in 66 i believe yeah and this is and hank aaron is 32 years old at, at he's the 32 time. yeah which you know by today's standards you'd be like eh, i don't know if i want to send the guy to a 10-year contract yeah, yeah. you're starting to go down you know what i mean yeah. yeah yeah but his numbers still kick ass um you know, that 32-year-old season, he's got 44 homers and 127 RBIs, leading the league. Um, you know, what, but his age 30, so 71 is his age 37 season. Um, and what did you notice about that one? So the, the team is 82 and 80, third place. So they're 
they're kind of just an average team that year in 71. Mm-hmm. But what about Hank? Uh, yeah, 47 home runs, 118 RBI. He bats 327. His OPS is 1079. His OPS plus is 194, which is Jeez. ridiculous. <laughs> Somehow Jesus. we only finished third in the MVP voting. I'm I'm like, who won because, the MVP in uh, yeah, that that year, Joe uh, Joe Torrey won the MVP. Who I who I totally think of as a manager only. I gotta right. admit, even though he yeah. was a player, don't get me wrong. You know, and he had a good he won an MVP at two hundred thirty hits that year. Um, but like, I still just think of him as a manager. I do. It, it, yeah, and and if you go by WAR, and and that shouldn't just be you know MVP shouldn't just be like WAR like you know, chalker, right? And Fergie right. Jenkins that year had 11.8 war, which is like twice what Joe Torre had. <laughs> so right. Levi could make an argue, argument for Fergie right. Jenkins. And, um, but it, yeah, it, it might, it might come down to, you know, the team, how their teams did. Right. Cause a lot of times then they would vote for, you'd only get like a first place vote for MVP if your, if your team went to the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. He's still kicking, but up until basically like, his age 40 season. Right. And that's the, that's, that's the year that he breaks the record in 74. Right. So obviously that season's all about that. And his, at that point, you know, his productivity was starting to decline. He was, but, but still, I mean, he's still above average. Yeah. He's like, still above totally the average above baseball average. player at, at, on the cusp of his 40th birthday. You know, yeah. he's still like, totally yeah. really yeah. good. Yeah. The dude never hit 50 uh, home runs in a year. And um, to many people, mm-hmm. he's still the home run king. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, 44, it looks, 47, he had, yeah, that year in 71, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah look like, at, yeah. he, he, he the led the league in OPS at age 37, which is nuts. <laughs> pretty crazy, yeah. 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 So, yeah, just looking at those stats, it's it's pretty unreal, and just how long he played, too. We're looking at 23 seasons, so, yeah, and. So obviously, it's, obviously it's him. <laughs> Hank makes the All Braves team. Certainly, <laughs> uh, he's the captain. Um, let's guys, you guys mind going down the lineups, and I'm going to name the position. And who do you think? Who do you think's like the the premier Brave? All right. Now, now, mind you, mind you, they played for some. These guys played for some other teams, but we'll think of you know their prime years with Atlanta. They're both the premier brave and like our favorite, right? Like there's, yeah, there's right. sentimentality there's, there's that's playing a factor here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So first base, do Fred, we all say Fred McGriff? Fred McGriff. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was going to say Fred McGriff. Crime dog. It is. All right. Yep. Yeah. All right. Second base. Obviously this is a position where, there's a shortage and always has been all around baseball. You know, I mean, it's like, like it's a low offensive position. It is. Yeah. We're, I feel like baseball's relief. I've been searching for the next, the next Sandberg for like the last 30 years. You know what I mean? Like Jeff. Kitt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Get says you wrote here, Ozzy Albies, who's playing now. I like Ozzy Albies. I, I, second baseman. I, I just, I, I yeah. like, like his build. I, I like, uh, the way he plays. Um, I, uh, his production is it's above average. It's not like Hall of Fame caliber, but like mm-hmm. if he keeps it up, it could be. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think he's a really fun player to watch. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at MLB. A, a writer was doing the top like five position players and some honorable mentions for each team. He, this is uh, Mark Bowman. 
Mark Bauman is the the writer. He says Marcus Giles. Which I remember him mm-hmm. being pretty yeah. prolific on the Braves. Um, yeah, yeah, he had a hell of a I mean, year in I, 2003. Not bad for a guy drafted in the, I'm, this is not a typo, 53rd round of the 1996 MLB draft. I didn't know wow. there was the 53rd round. Yeah, I don't think there still is. Yeah. Um, like day, day 15 of the MLB right, draft. Right. The crowd's gotten pretty sparse at that point. <laughs> no, it's just at a bar down the street. Right, That's where right. They move it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Levi's like, it's, it's, it's not, open, not open bar anymore either. Cash bar. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the the I guess his big stat is his eight oh nine OPS ranks first among all brave second basemen all time. He had a pretty short career, uh Giles yeah. did. And, yeah, it's a small um, window. He had a um, he had like a heart issue, uh it sounds like, and so his career was cut a bit short. I, I didn't know he was that good during those five years though, until I, I started looking at the stats. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Recency bias for me though with Ozzy Albies. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Another exactly. mention uh, in that article later, and we talked about him earlier when we were talking about Diamond Kings before the episode. Glenn Hubbard is considered yeah. one of the the top Braves second baseman of all time, and it mm-hmm. says without Hubbard being a coach in the minor league system, Giles might not have never made it to the team. Yeah, there you go. Because I guess he was the one, maybe he was pushing for him in that 53rd round to be taken. Saw something. Yeah, doing a favor. Yeah, yeah the 53rd yeah. round, you're doing favors for, like, family members. At that point. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Uh, I guess Hubbard's, you know, his thing is he started more games at second base than any other Braves player in the modern era. Yeah, he held down second base in the 80s up until they got good. Yeah. 78 to 87. Yeah. Good for him. Good for Glenn. Steady Glenn. So he, he would have been, he, he would have played alongside Dale Murphy quite a bit then, yeah. you know, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, oh, shit, yeah, I totally I, left I, Dale Murphy off this list. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, Murphy, Murphy never really got to play for like, did, was he, I'm, I'm trying to look here. He was on the 90, was he on the 91 Braves, uh, Murphy? Let me see here. I don't know when he got traded. Yeah, because I remember he went to the Phillies. Uh, yeah, he went to the Phillies in '90. Oh, okay, it was that early? Okay, yeah. I did not. Yeah. I did not know that. Um, right, forgotten. So yeah, bummer. So like, I associate him with the Braves. It looks weird when he's in another jersey, Phillies or <laughs> the Rockies. The Rockies. Um, <laughs> but he never really got to play for a good Braves team, right? Yeah, basically, right when he left, they got good. Yeah, bummer. Yeah. Yeah, I'll put him in the outfield. You know, he's he's the guy that I feel like in recent years comes up as like he should be in the Hall of Fame. Everybody says, you know, that's like he he's the definition like he's of a, a borderline Hall of Famer. What's yeah. that? He's the definition of a borderline Hall of Famer. Like, totally. like he is the totally. argument. <laughs> I, yeah. to, to me, though, like if I don't know if he's borderline, man, I think he's in like seven time all star, two time MVP, five gold gloves, four silver sluggers. Had led the league in homers twice, yeah. twice. Like, how can you do all that and not be in the Hall of Fame? Just because yeah. of like some new modern statistic thing that like says he wasn't as good as he was. Well, like, he's been eligible since like '98, to be clear. So, <laughs> correct, correct. No, 
Like, I wondered, and so, and that was another thing. I was like, well, I wonder if he pissed somebody off, but he's supposedly, like, one of the nicest guys in baseball. Right, right. right. So, so part it's of it, like, what, of, what? So, he, his, um, the average career war of a Hall of Famer is 71, and meanwhile, Murphy's is 46. Um, and so, it, he, it might just be he wasn't, he, he wasn't great for long enough. Like, he wasn't mm-hmm. able to stretch it out longer. It's the um, Dave Stewart syndrome. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, he was good enough, though, to be an all-star almost for a decade. Seven years. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All-star, though. I mean, all-star is kind of a, you know, that's voted on yeah, by fans. And so it's kind of a popularity contest. But, I mean, he was the MVP twice, but yep. it was just early in his career. Yeah. That's not nothing. Yeah. Heck, oh, yeah. I would. I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I'm a sap for guys that played when I was a kid, so he gets in, in my opinion. <laughs> um, Why not? He was yeah. also on every box of Donruss that one. Yes, yeah, 88, 88 Donruss. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So obviously, we. I don't know if he makes the outfield, but Del Murphy is on the team. All right, let's put it that way. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Shortstop is a little tougher. Is this? Gets you got here is it Jeff Blauser? Jeff Blauser, Raphael for call. Yeah, I don't know how much time we want to waste spending. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> talking about these guys. Um, but so, so pick one. So shortstop. You know, uh, the Braves haven't had an Ozzy Smith. Let's put it that way. All right. Um, with all due respect to those guys, Blauser and for call. Um, at least I know their names. You know, um, Chipper Jones. Pretty easy choice at third base. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, catcher. I've read some lists that said Javi Lopez, and I had a, I read other lists that said Brian McCann. The only reason I don't like Brian McCann is that he's a red ass. That okay. he, he's the sheriff out there. He likes to like enforce all the unwritten rules, and I have like low tolerance for the unwritten rules. Yeah. So right. Brian McCann can shove it. Uh, I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy. Otherwise, um, he kisses his kids before he goes to bed and all that. But um, Javi Lopez. Special mention: Joe Torre did play for the uh, the Braves for three years as a catcher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But not I, not long enough, I don't think, to be considered like the legendary catcher of all time by then. You've got Javi Lopez on um, <clears throat> guys on the bulk of those '90s teams too. Yeah, yeah, ca- catching know. that staff. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was his his career for the Braves was '92 to '03. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's 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 a good mate for those guys. Yep. Um, okay, moving on. Um, okay, so we've got our infield there and our catcher. Outfield. I would say Dale. Oh. Dale should be an outfielder. Right. Yeah. No? Yeah. I. Yeah. He should be. He 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 mostly played right, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Did Unfortunately, he? so did Hank, Hank Aaron. That's the thing. Got Hank Aaron, <laughs> and then now you've got Acuna. Um, so, I, we can nominate one of these guys to be the DH because right. now the National League has a let's, DH. Let's, let's throw Del Murphy <laughs> as a DH. What position was Dave Justice? Ooh, ooh. yeah, he, he was in good, the outfield good too. Good inclusion with Dave right. Justice. Not a guy yeah. I even thought of Levi. Good, good, yeah. good catch. Yeah, yeah. And I think of him on the Braves. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, to be clear, uh, uh, Murphy played the most games at center field and the second most oh, really? games okay. at right field. Dave okay. Right fielder, center field. It's a right field and first base. 
Andrew Jones, though, at center field is it's hard to argue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say he's was he caught up in was Andrew Jones caught up in in roids because no. his numbers justify the Hall of Fame, right? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't know. Um, I don't remember enough. I mean, he started playing in '96, <clears throat> so he's certainly in the era. But um, yeah, 2005. Andrew Jones puts up 50 homers and 128 RBIs. He got he got 58 percent of the vote last year. Um, oh, okay, so he might be on his way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He his his productivity, like basically, I think what hurts, I think the the window hurts him a little bit. Gets to because basically he he didn't do much after he was 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He you won know? all those Gold Gloves between '98 and 2007. And then after that, yeah, and he he gets a he gets an early start. He he enters the league at nineteen, so obviously you know much really young player, you know, yeah, uh, even by base, yeah. yeah. So so yeah, he's just he has a hell of a decade in his twenties, and then I don't know, maybe just just starting so young, it drops off after after he leaves Atlanta, yeah, and bounces around four or five teams, White Sox included. We all. Lord knows Kenny Williams loved those loves those guys past their prime. So I forget, uh, we, I forgot we got he was him. on the White Sox. Yeah, we got him in 2010. Yeah. yeah um, that's weird. Yeah. And then um obviously we we've got to have Aaron there and Acuna is so exciting to watch right now. Oh, he's um, so good. He's so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's great, and then for for pitching guys, obviously we have the the, the we have hold on, we forgot about Ron Gant. I, I got I got twenty five minutes on Ron Gant. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't. All right. <laughs> I just appreciate Ron Gant um, from the late eighties, early nineties, and 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 thinking about those those guys who would go out there and, and crank out thirty dangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I always found Ron Gant a lot of fun. He had a good he had a good run there, right? Um, he played for St. Louis as well. I he think, did. For a little while. Yeah. 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 Maybe Cincinnati. A couple, too. couple good I, seasons I in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So about the pitching, about this pitching I've heard about in Atlanta. Right. <laughs> Phil Necro. No. <laughs> Phil Necro was a legendary pitcher for the Braves, but he no wore doubt. about another twenty-seven jerseys also <laughs> during his career. Um, who's going to make yeah. the case for Mike Hampton, guys? Anyway, go on. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, obviously we have to say the big three, which is Schmoltz, Maddox, and Glavin. And yeah. then, yeah. so who do we surround them with? So it, it, do you think Steve Avery? Was I'm partial with Steve to be- Avery because um, yeah. he, he was in my glove. Um, I had a Rawling Steve Avery glove. I still have to this day. Um, he, Steve Avery's career kind of ended abruptly so yeah i mean i as far as other like legendary pitchers on the braves i don't know that many more um since then though or uh, today like max freed could end up being uh an all-timer he's off to a good start that's for sure um well, guys, I'm looking at oh, War, if you, Warren Spawn wasn't did well, Warren but he Spahn was mostly play? in Milwaukee. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. We'll yeah. we'll stick to Georgia for this episode, but yeah, the obvious obvious case there, Levi. Uh, yeah. If we go, if we if we if we go back to Milwaukee days, Phil Necro is up there. I mean, like just looking at War, mm-hmm. like Necro's War is really high. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, he did it for a long time there. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I mean, right? I'll go with Avery. Yeah, you go, Necro, you, right? you go Necro. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So that's a that's a five. I'll put those guys up against virtually the top three up against anybody. Yeah. Um, for relievers, it was a little trickier. I don't know. Like this guy's still playing, and he's played for a, it feels like what he's played for like what feels like a lot of teams at this point now. Craig Kimbrell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. His his early years, uh, he was as dominant as you can be as a reliever. Yeah. 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 Yep. Again, like. Maybe I'm not lionizing the guy much because he's playing right now still. But, yeah, he's he's probably the one, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, throughout the throughout the 90s, you had Mark Wohlers uh, as well, Mike Stanton, Paul Ossenmacher in the 80s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Venters uh, was good for a few years there in the 2000s. Uh, if you remember yeah. Johnny Venters, he was pretty little, dominant. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, more like uh, lately, AJ Mentor. Contract too. Okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I remember Mike, Mike Hampton. Um, like I remember they gave him a huge contract and he fizzled yeah. out. Yeah, got it. Your guy, he got injured. And just Hold never on. Really can you pick? But can you pick Smoltz as a starter and Smoltz as a reliever? That would be fun. He was only a reliever for like four seasons, right? But right. yes, yeah. he, he he's makes him even more awesome. You know, because he can do. Was Tim Hudson always a starter on the Braves, or did he relieve? Good call there, Levi. I don't know. I think it was predominantly uh, a starter. Yeah, okay. maybe at some point he was, but he was never what he was never their one of their first four guys up in the bullpen. Right. Um. Uh. And uh, John Rocker can suck it. <laughs> That's uh. <laughs> That's a whole different category of terrible human beings. But um, <laughs> Tim Hudson, I don't know, Levi. Like, he's winning 16 games up until, like, 2012. So I'm guessing they they kept him as a starter. Yeah. He's 16 and 7. Still doing pretty well. I mean, Hudson, dude, good good mention, Levi. I mean, I don't know if he cracks that rotation that we just mentioned. He's certainly not on, t- on par with the, the, the first three guys we mentioned. But... Hudson was never really a reliever to any yeah. huge extent. Looking at well, I'm saying as a starter, stats. like as a starter, um, he would give Avery maybe a run for his money. Yeah, although I agree. I, I, agree. I, I agree yeah. that I would probably still pick Avery over him. Also, Hudson, Hudson, you could argue he he split his time. He was in Atlanta more years, but you could say his more dominant years were in Oakland, even at the beginning of his career. Yeah, for sure. He won 20 games in 2000, 18 games in 2001. Um, so, so yeah, but good good career on Tim Hudson. This, thank you for bringing that up. It's a name I hadn't thought of in a while because he's been out of the league now for a few years. But, mm-hmm. yeah, good good inclusion. Um, Excellent. If, if yeah. I could, real quick, uh, yeah. uh, talk about Bobby Cox. Um, oh, sure. Uh, where I, I wasn't that familiar with his story before he became the manager for the Braves in the nineties. And he was the leader of all of those teams throughout the nineties for 20 years into the two thousands. And, uh, he was, he started to be a a manager in the, in the seventies. Uh, and then he managed, uh, the, uh, he managed the, the, the the blue Jays at one point and, and he was fired by the Braves in the early eighties and then came back to the Braves as a GM, which is a weird trajectory Mm -hmm. for a fired Mm -hmm. coach to come back as a GM. And he was a GM in Atlanta and he, 
he was responsible for bringing in these uh, these players who formed the the core of those '90s teams. As a GM, he brought, he was responsible for Glavin and Steve Avery and John Smoltz and Ron Gant and, and uh, Justice uh, David Justice and Chipper Jones even. And uh-huh. uh, and then he named himself the manager. He hired himself as a manager, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it worked out. Like like after that, and then he hired away uh, John Sherholtz from the Kansas City Royals. Uh, who Sherholtz helped create the the Royals um, '80s World Series teams, and Sherholtz became the architect for all of those Braves '90s teams that that had that run at division titles. and And so I didn't realize Bobby Cox's path to being a Hall of Fame manager and how unusual it was. I didn't know that either, or I, or I had forgotten it at least. Yeah, that is that is pretty crazy to to do the front office first, you know. Yeah, and, and then and then go go to the dugout. Um, yeah, that's odd. Yeah, you don't you don't see that trajectory that often. Yeah, yeah. And and, and nowadays, after a guy is done coaching, like he, it's never like, oh, I'm going to go be a GM now. That's not not usually an option. Um, yeah. Uh, so good for Bobby Cox. Uh, he's still with us, and uh, he had a stroke a few years ago, I think. And and um, but that's uh, it's, it's uh, it was a hell of a run he had. Halt. I think a uh, Hall of Famer to be sure. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, a couple of names across the years that uh, I I just you know as fun mentions here. We got to mention Dion Prime Time. Yeah. Dion Sanders, yeah, yeah, legendary sure. brave. And uh, another guy who I used to pull his card all the time was uh, Terry Pendleton. Oh yeah, Pendleton. Uh, he got an MVP as the Braves, right? I think. I think like '91, he was MVP. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you're right. So uh, yeah, yeah. He he was an MVP. Uh, '91. Yeah, yeah. Hell of a season. About one, guys. Uh, go ahead, Levi. If you're not done. Yeah, no, sorry. I was the last one I was going to mention was the from our Diamond King days, uh, the classic. Bob Horner, maybe the award for the greatest locks coming out from the sides under his hat. Beautiful. <laughs> Just beautiful. beautiful golden little flares, wings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, a guys, a, a guy like Levi's talking about these kind of, you know, like, you know, hall of very good type guys um, and just some sentimental favorites. A guy I think of as always a brave, even though he played for, I'm looking at his, his baseball reference page here, and he played for more teams than I recall. I always think of Otis Nixon as yeah. as one of more well known oh, yeah. Braves. Yeah. yeah, you know, um, for sure. Obviously, he was a stolen base machine, um, and was fun to watch. I, I remember him always battling addiction. You know, I mean, I remember him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting he yeah. he's 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 had a, a rough go of mm-hmm. it um, uh, on uh, off the field. Uh, so you know, obviously, um, there's 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 some some sort of tragedy that might have hurt his career but but nonetheless yeah he um i always think of him as a as a pretty good brave and he was he was on that 90 91 to 93 he's only on the braves so uh but he's a contributor you know certainly to those teams he hit close to 300 in both in the 91 and 92 so he was a fun guy to watch i think on the field yeah so. yeah and and uh uh, Andres Galarraga's um, yeah. tenure with the Braves was very brief, uh, just uh, just a couple seasons, 
but uh, he had he had a monster year in '98. Forty four home runs, one hundred twenty one RBI, batting three hundred five, uh, OPS of nine ninety one. Uh, the big cat man, hell of a year. Was he tied to? No, he wasn't tied to Roids. Whatever was he? I don't he? think so. I don't I'm think thinking of my yeah. I'm thinking of Palmero. Sorry, he was born oh, a big yeah. cat, yeah, and he right. played a big cat. Yeah, yeah. That's why sometimes Andrew Jones gets linked to it. Is just that era, like yep. 96, 97, 98. Yeah, he was like unstoppable. Like he could hit power, and he had speed, and then all of a sudden it just fell off. Yeah, he yep. was he was a hell of a center fielder. And oh, like yeah. during those years, and he could move. Yeah. He was kind of a bigger guy, man. He could just yeah, move. He was kind of a husky dude, you know, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. And he, he really moved well for his body type. Yeah, well, you know, and I'm I have no idea if he did or if he didn't, but it was just that era, you know, Ken Caminiti. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep, victim of circumstance. Brady Anderson. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. Sheffield. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, um, a, a, shout, a special shout out to uh, one of the only shout outs we'll ever do to a pitching coach, Leo Mazzoni, rocking oh, back yeah. and forth in the dugout yeah. as yeah. <laughs> uh, one of one of baseball's greatest mm-hmm. pitching coaches that the stats have shown that Mazzoni had an impact on starting pitchers uh, and it was significant. So good for Leo. Yeah, man. I mean, um, instrumental and those guys' success, and, and you're right, one of the good baseball kind of quirks uh, as well with the rocking. Um, well, yeah, good stuff tonight, fun. guys. Um, we're gonna we're gonna put a bow on it there, I think. And uh, want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, check us out on social at Rock in Chew. Uh, like us on Facebook. Tell all your friends, and um, that's Rock in Chew for. Uh, I guess Otis Nixon. It's it, Nixon. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Um, so yeah, we look, we look forward to seeing everybody next time and, um, have a good one. Take care. Peace.